Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. (laughs) Coming back at you with episode 45, anybody other than Chris Watts. So this week we're going to be focusing on family annihilator Robert Fisher. Yeah, Amy doesn't even want to hear that dude's name. Well, I've been inundated with lots of stuff on all my true crime groups on Facebook and, you know, watching the documentary and kids talking about kids talking to me about it in class. It's just, it's been a lot. And it's not that I, it's not that I'm. She's playing hard to get. It's not that I don't want to talk about it. It's just that there, there has to be something else to talk about, you know, like why. So that's the question that comes to mind is why are people so obsessed with it? Why do you think people are so obsessed with it? As someone who isn't as inundated with it as me. Uh, the concept of killing your whole family. Is already pretty crazy. Is, I think, yeah, I think people can't wrap their minds around that, you know? But why, and, why the fascination with Chris Watts specifically? Because there's, like, video f- footage mm-hmm. and evidence. And then you're also being able to watch his reaction to the evidence shown to people for the first time yeah, too. Th- it's like, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's pretty so much. Pre- yeah. It's like to catch a predator, like those shows, Yeah, like, you know, it's, yeah. It allows you to be a voyeur. Yeah. Yeah. And you get to see like when Chris Watts is watching the ring footage and he's yeah. like fucking like jumping out of his skin. Mm-hmm. And then right when he leaves, the the guy the neighbor is telling the cops he's like never like that you know he's like he fucking did it yeah like right out of the gates and it's like whoa you're like seeing this shit and it's like almost it's like not you know real time now but I mean it's like I don't know yeah and well I mean it was only it was the end of tw- it was like the I think August 2018 that it happened so it's relatively recently it's just two years ago yeah it's fresh yeah and the footage is pretty crazy yeah but- on top of that I hate to say it. But the the fact that he is not bad looking definitely is a factor. I guess like his love mail in prison has gone up like threefold, fourfold. Like he gets like he gets women. He gets Chad marriage. Like, how did you get your pecs so sick, bro? <laughs> he gets marriage proposals from women like every single day. And they, they just, like, can't even keep up with the mail. That I mean, proves it. that women are sick. Yeah. <laughs> and and I know. It, it's it's not. You're not doing any not justice the, for yourselves yeah, and as women. And it's not on the flip side either. It's not like women. I mean, you know, some women do. But I think that I think women are crazier than men, I think, when it comes down to it. And that's something. I think I, that's something we can agree on. Well, and it's something that I'm going to talk about when it comes to family annihilators, because before we get started on um, Robert William Fisher and discussing him, I have some stuff to talk about in terms of family annihilators. <laughs> I need to talk to you, Kevin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. I got a lot of my information for this portion of the episode from three different websites. One is uh, a research essay by Bernie Ochter called Men Who Murder Their Families. And then there's another amazing website that I got most of my information from, which is called Crime Traveler. And it's a it's a nonprofit. 
And the webpage specifically is called Family Annihilation, The Crimes and Psychology of Familicide by Fiona Guy. It's such an exhaustive review of the research that's out there. And it's it's so good. Like it was the best source I found. And then the last was kind of a website. I just got a couple of facts from called Stay at Home Mum. And it's an Australian website that focuses on true crime. But one of the reasons I wasn't really able to use a lot of like FBI and crime websites, like official stuff, is that they don't really distinguish between spree slash mass murderers and family murderers because the way that that stuff gets categorized is like, you know, four people died at the house. They don't necessarily say if they were related or not. So a lot of the statistics they have out there, it doesn't really differentiate between family annihilators and spree killers or mass killers, you know? Do you think that's because the family annihilators are, like, so rare? Partially. Um, but also, I mean, family annihilators are are spree slash mass murderers, you know? So there doesn't necessarily need to be a distinction between them in terms of FBI crime stats. I think that as... More of a subgenre. Yeah, as it becomes more prevalent, I'm sure that they're going to probably distinguish more. But a lot of the studies like the tra- uh, crime traveler and other like, you know, study studies, like research studies, not FBI studies. They use they, they use the FBI statistics to some, some extent, but they actually use newspaper statistics way more because it actually talks about the family element and like who the actual people were, you know. Are they going back in time to get newspapers? Yeah. So they're, so a lot of the research stuff that is cited in those websites, it's the the researchers and academics are going through old newspaper footage and stuff like that. So it's so they can figure out how the victims were related to the perpetrators and stuff, you know. You know, that's amazing because I was trying to make a joke and you actually had an answer. Oh, because who prints newspapers anymore? Oh, everything's digitized. Right. Yeah. But okay. <laughs> Sorry. And obviously we're going to reference a couple of things throughout. One is I'm sure we'll reference the Chris Watts documentary on Netflix called American Murder, The Family Next Door. And you and I also watched a documentary about Robert William Fisher called Where is Robert Fisher? And it's a documentary that you can actually watch on Amazon Prime. So with all that being said, let's talk family annihilators. Yes. (laughs) Can you guess the percentage of men who perpetrate family annihilation? Like 0.3%. Who do or don't? Don't. (laughs) 95% of family annihilators are male. Okay. That's a, yeah, or slash head of household. It's, um, uh, we are the head of the household, so it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. No. <laughs> this traditional idea of the man providing for and looking after his family may be one factor when he no longer feels he is meeting his role adequately, often if finances or employment breaks down. And of those male perpetrators, the major- the overwhelming majority of them are white. And they're the age, I think they're aged like 30 to 40 years old. So I want to talk about some notable cases because, you know, the name of this episode is Anybody Other Than Chris Watts. So, I mean, family annihilators, I think, are maybe like one of those kind of rubbernecking, like, whoa, you know, like stories, like you were saying. But it's just weird that Chris Watts has just, you know, captured so many people. I think that... If we were not in quarantine and, you know, Netflix wasn't on everybody's TV every single night, I think that this might be not as big of a sense. I mean, just like the Tiger King. Yeah, Yeah. just like the Tiger King. I don't think it would have gotten as big as it did had we not been in quarantine. And also, we keep hearing about all those crime statistics about, you know, domestic abuse and family violence and all of that stuff going up and up during quarantine. The Chris Watts thing is kind of like weirdly perfect timing for it to kind of become the talk of the nation, if you will. Do you think that's done on purpose? Yes. 
Also, it's a it's a documentary you can I don't know when they made the documentary, but it's a documentary you could definitely make during quarantine because 80 percent of it is primary footage that all they have to do is sew together stuff from police body cams, YouTube videos, interviews and news stories. And they only had to conduct a few interviews for the whole documentary. Like there wasn't much they had to do. And they definitely, you know. It's definitely a film you could make during quarantine. So I don't know if they made it during quarantine, but I will say it was very short. I was surprised by how short it was. And I also really appreciate, and I don't mean that in like a really positive way, but I think I, I think I appreciate them leaving his girlfriend out of it or his former girlfriend, secret girlfriend, mistress, whatever you want to call her, Nicole Kessinger. I feel like a lot of people really tend to vilify her and try to make it her fault somehow or like she made him do it kind of thing. Well, and that's the thing what we're always doing in this country is like, how can we blame the woman somehow? You know, even Chris Watts's mom is like, how can I blame Shanann for what he did to her, you know, or what he did to the kids? Like, I mean, it's just it's so crazy how quick and happy we are to blame things on women but I, I think I appreciate that Netflix kept her out of it. But there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there about how Nicole actually helped dispose of the bodies and how she. But there's no proof. So, like, I, I, I think the reason I think I appreciate it is because I think she should be left alone because Scott Peterson's former mistress, Amber Frey, she'll for or fry. I don't know how you say it exactly, but she'll forever be tainted by being the mistress but again like nicole kessinger and amber fry they didn't know they thought that either their you know their new partners that they were super excited about they thought that the that they were either like the the wives were totally out of the picture or they were getting a divorce like i hate when people ascribe blame to like the unknowing you know mistress they don't even know that they're a mistress if that's actually the case then yes yeah so uh, those are two obviously very big family annihilator cases in recent memory. And Scott Peterson has been a blip on the radar recently because his death row or death penalty conviction was overturned recently. He'll still be serving life in prison. But goddamn, there's there are women that they're not more than women. I think there's just a whole school of people who just like totally think he's innocent, which I think is insane. Because there's so, I mean, there actually isn't physical evidence against him, but there's so much circumstantial evidence, it will make your head spin. And so if you want to know more about the Scott and Lacey Peterson thing, um, True Crime Campfire, which is a really, really good podcast that I listen to a lot. They've been around just about as long as us. They did a two-parter Lacey Peterson for their one year anniversary that's really extensive and good. And they they cite actually a couple books that you can read, one of which I believe is Scott Peterson's sister wrote a book. So other notable cases that you've probably heard of, I tried to kind of just put together a quick list. There's the Lawson family murders that happened, I believe, in North Carolina in the early 1900s, maybe 1920s, I believe during like the Great Depression. This dude just killed his whole family. I mean, we're talking like six of his seven children and his wife. Did and, he kill himself? And then I believe he killed himself. Most family annihilators do attempt suicide or um, after they kill their families. Most. It's like something like 80% or something. I'll get to that stat. Then there's John List. And the reason he's super duper famous is that he was on America's Most Wanted with our buddy John Walsh. And... Someone had made a age-progressed clay bust of him, of what he would look like, you know, 20 years later. And somebody, I think it was in Colorado or something, was like, hey, that's my next-door neighbor, and, like, reported him. I always love those, like, compositions they make. And it's always some dude in fucking Colorado. Yeah, I know. (laughs) He Maybe it was either Arizona or Colorado. I feel like it's always Arizona or Colorado. It's, like, almost never anywhere else. It's amazing. Like the whoever, whatever genius made that clay bus even guessed what kind of glasses he would be wearing. I think that he had consulted with like a psychologist or something or just like these are most likely the kinds of glasses because, you know, he was like ex-military and it's just like he probably wouldn't stray away from this style or, you know, he would, you know, it's just so crazy. And, And like we're talking like science of like the 90s there wasn't even dna yet there wasn't parabon labs maybe they consulted miss cleo 
Maybe. Let's bring it back to the old sheet. Yeah. <laughs> There's also Christian Longo, which we'll definitely be doing an episode on him later on. He is just this very, very strange case. It actually, the murders happened to the Pacific Northwest, I believe in Newport, Oregon. And he's just a humongous piece of shit. But one of my favorite true crime books of all time by uh, Finkel, his la- uh, Ralph Finkel, I want to say. Uh, his last name is Finkel, who was a New York Times newspaper writer. He wrote a book on Christian Longo. And it's one of my favorite true crime books of all time. It's called True Story. And then there's um, a bunch of subtitle stuff after, like something about murder and mea culpa. But it's a, it's a great book. It's one of my favorite books of all time. And then there's Marcus Wesson, who is the only guy on my list who is a black family annihilator. And it's a very, very strange story. I'd like to eventually do him as well. He had like a family compound and multiple wives and there was a lot of incest and stuff going on. And he killed, I believe, two of his wives and seven of his children in during like a police standoff. And so uh, I think he tried to take his own life when he was being apprehended, but they were able to get him away from the weapon, I guess. Mm, I have not even heard about that one. That one I wouldn't say is as famous, but I, I, I bet that in true crime circles, people know who Marcus Wesson is. He's this, you know, older black gentleman who, well, I won't, I don't want to call him a gentleman murderer who has this very godly like white head of wizened hair he just looks like wizardly a little bit like he's just got a look to him where he looks serious he's yeah okay (laughs) but but who commits a lot of incest and murders his entire family so and then there's chris benoit who obviously he's super famous because he's a former pro wrestler and he unfortunately was also famous for killing his wife and seven-year-old son and he actually did commit suicide. He, I believe, I didn't double, like, this is just stuff I kind of know from the top of my head. He committed suicide by, I believe, he tied, like, his weight set somehow. Like, he had, like, he basically hung himself on his weight bench using all of his weights. We need to consult Mason about this one. He would, he's probably oh, screaming yeah. right now. Well, no, I, I definitely got it right. Like, that is how he killed himself. But Mason should be our guest on our show, and we should talk about Chris Benoit. Or just lifting weights. Or just lifting weights. <laughs> then there's Jeffrey McDonald. He's been kind of super popular lately as well because there is a documentary out about, or a docuseries out about him called A Wilderness of Air, which is based on the book by Errol Morris. And who Errol Morris, who's one of my favorite directors filmmakers of all time he was most recently on criminal if you listen to that podcast i always plug them because i love them kind of similar to a couple other family annihilators there are people who he was also very attractive and there are people on both sides saying he did it he didn't do it kind of like scott peterson and obviously scott peterson's on my list as well there's also another guy bradford bishop that's super duper interesting he's never been caught I thought he was on the FBI top 10 list, but he's not. He's just wanted. He's just a wanted fugitive. He, that one's a really, really interesting story. A lot of podcasts cover his story. Um, he's been on the run for like 40 or 50 years at this point. He m- most likely is no longer around, but there are people. But there are people who believe he's still alive. And he was also ex-military intelligence. So it's really hard to catch some of these guys because they literally – are trained to stay away, to to be spot like almost spot. Or trained to go down to South America. And yeah. Live yeah. Yeah. in the jungle. And then I I added Josh Powell to my list. If you don't know who Josh Powell is, uh, it's the case of Susan Powell. He most likely killed his wife Susan and then later on killed his two kids in this and in himself, blew up his house when a social worker came to do a supervised visit or something, or, you know, get him back or whatever. I will, again, plug my favorite single-story podcast, which is Cold. If that sounds interesting at all to you, it's a super crazy story. And then, of course, Chris Watts, like we've already talked about, and we're trying to avoid this episode, but we just keep coming back to. So... just She just can't stay away. I know. I just can't stay away, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) 
I want to. I hate you. And and we'll talk throughout about why I think maybe, you know, there are certain people that bug me more than others. He's also like uh, in that entire list, he's the least detestable human being. And that makes him the most detestable human being. Also, I think Chris Benoit, I think that was a big surprise for people. But everybody else, it seems like there was so many warning signs. But for Chris Watts, there were like none. The only person who maybe had an inkling was... No, nobody did. Nobody had an inkling. And the only reason that his wife was suspicious of anything... She she wasn't suspicious that he was going to kill her. She was suspicious that he was having an affair and was going to leave her. There was, there was no suspicion around him hurting her or their kids. So other types of familicide offenders are young familicide. Familicide, say that one. Yeah, offenders. And that's often like the kids of families killing their parents or killing. Well, parent, parent killing is parasite. And that happens often more, more often than familicide. But there is at least... One super interesting, super popular case that everybody knows, which is the Amityville horror, right? Ronald Butch DeFeo, who killed his entire family. I believe there were like three or four kids and his parents. And obviously people know that one because of the Amityville horror. But this, it's total bullshit. It wasn't, it wasn't ghosts or supernatural voices telling him not to do it. It was him wanting money. And, you know, so much of the time when kids kill their parents or families, it's it's money motivated. I mean, look at the Menendez brothers. What about Lizzie Borden? Lizzie Borden, that was money too. There you go. Yeah, so there you go. Young offenders tend to kill just their parents. They don't tend to kill their siblings if they can help it. You Unless know? their siblings got some money. Yeah. And, and going down. And Bruce Blackman, I a podcast covered him recently. He's super duper interesting. He one of the reasons he's interesting too is he killed his entire family. I think maybe he left like a little kid unkilled. Unkilled. Um, yeah. I like that. <laughs> but he's out. He killed like six people. How is he out? Canada. Fucking Canada. Yeah. And Bruce since Blackman, he sounds like he he sounds like a fucking. This pirate. happened. I believe it happened in the 70s, and I don't think he's gotten so much as a speeding ticket since then. So if you want to talk about rehabilitation, you know, maybe they've got something down. But, like, there's a couple people out who you were like, what the fuck? Why are they out, like, in Canada? Like, a, a couple most notable ones are, like, Carla Homolka, the Ken and Barbie killers. She's out. She hasn't committed any more murders. Bruce Blackman, he's out. He hasn't committed any more murders. Jasmine, what's her name, who killed her parents? Actually, she's she. Well, her her werewolf boyfriend killed. You know. He, do you <laughs> yes. Now. Do you know I, what I'm talking about? Yes. Uh, her name was Jasmine. Obviously, her name has been changed, and she was like 13 years old when the murders happened, or like even like 12. She was super fucking young, but her boyfriend most likely committed all of the murders although she may have slit her little brother's neck anyways she's out she was only in for like seven years or eight years but canada is pretty notorious for letting people go she, even even the guy who ate the guy's face on the bus yeah he's out he's probably driving a bus <laughs> full of people yeah yeah delicious looking faces so I, yeah i just that's just a little canadian tangent right there but another famous one is Tyler Hadley. I don't think we'll ever cover him because he's super, super covered in podcasts. And it's partially because he's kind of known as like the party killer. And he wanted to have a party. So he killed his parents so he could have a party. And he just stacked Why up. would anyone invite the party killer to your party? Well, it, it was his party. Oh. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> So Tyler Hadley had a lot of issues growing up around like self-consciousness and he was on like human growth hormones, human growth hormone stuff. There's a lot of there's a lot. I've listened to literally like 10 podcasts about him and he was kind of a piece of shit. Well, more than kind of. He was a piece of shit. His mother and father loved him like nobody's business. They gave him whatever he wanted. He lived in this very safe, like gated community kind of place I guess it was pretty boring wherever it was that he lived and he wanted to have a party. And so he killed his parents and had a party. And it's a really crazy story. If you haven't looked up the Tyler Hadley stuff, it's super. If you if you search podcasts for it, you'd find at least 20, 30 podcasts that have covered it 
in recent, I mean, this probably happened like 2016 or something. And he probably would have, well, so it's one of those things too, where like he probably would have killed his brother if his brother was in the way, but I believe his brother was off at college and his brother actually wrote a book about it. And it's the, the book has the word fireflies. It's, I think it was called like a thousand fireflies or something. I'd like to read it. Um, his brother seems like a really good person. And even though he knows that his brother murdered both of his parents, like he still has like somewhat of a relationship with him. And I, yeah, it sounds like a really interesting book to read, but man, talk about having your shit change overnight, you know? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So those are young familicide offenders. 50% of young offenders tell somebody in advance that they're going to kill their families. Just like Tyler Hadley, he told his friends, I'm going to kill my parents so I can have this part. Like, they're unfortunately for a lot of young familicide people, offenders, they talk about it in advance. And I think that's partially of just like young people being like, oh, man, my parents suck. I just want to kill them, you know. And I think that obviously people don't take it seriously. Right. And so that's why there is a lot of documentation for like young offenders talking about it in advance, but it not being taken seriously because nobody even after he told Tyler Hadley, like told his friends, like I killed my parents. They didn't believe him. And finally, it took his best friend going in there and seeing blood and like a hand sticking out from under the mattress to be like, oh, shit, you really did kill your parents. Yeah, well, now with like Facebook and TikTok and all that shit, like kids are documenting every move they make and it's all being saved and can be used and will be used against them whenever, you know, it's appropriate. Yeah. So... So sorry, I know I'm kind of going on a lot. I didn't know I was going to take up so much time at the beginning here, but there's some. This is going to be a two-parter. Um... No, you think it's going to be a two-parter? I'm joking. Okay, I'll hurry up. Sorry. So their last last parts of the study is that there are a couple types of annihilators. There's there's the despondent type, which is the type of offender who feels despair and kills as an extended suicide. So it's like. I don't feel great about my life, so I'm going to kill you and take you with me kind of a thing. You know, that's my whole thing with these family annihilators. Why don't they just, just leave their families alone? kill themselves and let their families so live their lives? So it's saying that despondent type of family annihilators kill their families because their families are an extension of themselves. So if they're going to kill themselves, they have, they have to, quote unquote, kill their entire families. And then there's the hostile family annihilator, and those are the ones who kill or feel motivated to kill out of jealousy or revenge. And the primary victim is usually the spouse, and a lot of times the kids are just collateral. Or a lot of times they'll kill the kids in front of the spouse to hurt the spouse. Right. It's out of malicious intent. And I think we could put Yasser Saeed in that category. Yeah. For sure. Like he, I again... I'm not crazy about Tissy, but I also think he did it to hurt Tissy. And I think she's a victim somehow in that regard. I also think she fucking handed the kids over to Yasser. Yeah, she totally but did at the, the same, Judas goat move. But at the same time, like, he still, I think he did it to hurt her. So then there are, so those are the different types. And then there's four categories. And that it'll be, I'll, I, I'll nip it after this, okay? <laughs> There's the anomic killers. And these are individuals who, kind of similar to the despondent type ones, their families are an extension of their economic success. So when there's a breakdown in their economic success, like unemployment or uh, getting demoted at a job or something or getting fired, they lash out at their family members. Okay, yeah. Then there's the disappointed killers. And again... <laughs> this one specifically includes honor killings, so this one would definitely be right, Yasser. Okay. Yeah, and unfortunately, honor killings—it's not like they're—it's a rare thing in the United States. Like, there's quite a few every year. And dis disappointed killers are people who believe they have been let down by those around them, most often their partner or or their children or and their children. They may believe that they are not good enough, or they may believe that their family is not good enough or not meeting standards or expectations, in some cases having to do with cultural or traditional religious customs, which can lead to honor killings. 
There's also the paranoid killers. These individuals often believe that their family, especially their children, are under some form of threat or they need protecting. And it may be that they fear social services may come. So this would be like Josh Powell. Like he killed his kids because social workers were basically coming to get his kids. Right. So those are paranoid killers. And then the last type, and I, I kind of made this my own type, is just female annihilators. They're super rare because if we said 95% of the time that they're male, that means only 5% of the time they're female. And so there's... And I, I could not find easily in my head or a quick Google search, and so if you know of one, please let me know, a woman who killed her entire family, like either like partner, in-laws, whatever. I mean, we're talking like John List, Bruce Blackman, like those guys, like they killed mother-in-laws, like, you know, like everybody. They wiped out their entire family, yeah, right? Yeah, women just take out the kids, They right? tend to just take out the kids, Yeah. And then a lot of times if they take out their partner, they're kind of seen as like black widows and it's not really a family annihilator type of situation. A lot of times women feel prompted to kill based on financial gain, black widows. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So with women often, and I, I don't know if this is proven or if it's just a popular belief, but it's often assumed that she is either evil or insane. And unfortunately... The cases I looked at, that is, it seems like mental health always does play a factor. Unfortunately, once a month. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so then there's Andrea Yates. She's probably the most popular one because I think that people have kind of aligned her with like La Llorona, you know, like she drowned her kids in a bathtub in Texas. Also, it seems like most female annihilators come from Texas, at least like the notable ones, because there's also Darlie Routier. And I know it's a problematic one um, because a lot of people believe like I, there are more people, I think, out there that believe she's innocent than believe that she's guilty. And she also was in Texas. And then another famous one, but she actually only ended up killing one of her kids and then seriously injuring her other two kids is um, Diane Downs. And she's Oregon, I believe. Woo, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> But it does seem like they're more likely to kill their kids and kill themselves and not their partners. So some last stats. Usually intimate partner violence occurs in about 70% of the cases. 81% of family annihilators will attempt suicide after the fact. 90% of the time, the best predictor of family annihilation is domestic violence. There are other social and demographic factors such as sexual abuse, poverty, unemployment, and other family stressors like money, sex, and children. I think that with Chris Watts, I think it was a combination of money, sex, cheating, and the baby that was going to be born. So D, all of the above. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then... Mental health definitely does play into causes as well. 68% of those who killed their family had a history of depressive symptoms and 38% showed borderline traits of a personality disorder. So that's my stats on family annihilators that I didn't know was going to take that long. Sorry. Well, thank you, Amy. And also, I mean, it gives us a basis to understand this story, right? Well, yeah, of course. Okay, well, tell us the story. You did really well. Thank you. You're welcome. So this is the story of Robert William Fisher, who was born on April 13th, 1961, to parents William Fisher and Jan Howell in Brooklyn, New York. William Fisher was a banker. Robert had two sisters, and they all attended Sohoro High School in Tucson, Arizona. In 1976, William and Jan get a divorce. Robert was 15. According to relatives and friends, the divorce was not pretty, and Robert took it real hard, leaving long-lasting effects on him. Coworkers said he'd talk about how his life would be different if his mom wouldn't have left. This is when he worked at the Mayo Clinic Hospital as a surgical catheter technician. 
So if you can imagine getting a catheter inserted while the guy inserting it is talking about his mom leaving. And the reason, do you know why he's this surgical catheter guy? No. He was a firefighter and he he was military as well. And he really liked manly jobs like that. But he got severely injured and had back surgery and he was not allowed. He was not cleared to go back to the military or be a fireman again. So this was like a third choice career. So it also like demasculinized him big time. Okay, I didn't know the the, the timeline of his jobs. Oh, yeah. So this was the job he did up until the end here. Okay, because I have also here that Fisher had joined the U.S. Navy, Mm -hmm. and he tried out to be a Navy SEAL but didn't make it. Yeah, also a demasculinizing thing. Well, it's also like almost impossible to get into the SEALs because it's... yeah. Fucking insane. Yeah, but he didn't do it though, you know. So I'm sure that it took was a toll on notch his manhood. In the belt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a very manly man, as you guys will see. Like, and I put that in big air quotes. Hell yeah. So, as well as being a catheter technician, he was also a respiratory therapist and a firefighter at some different points. Yeah. So it goes military, firefighter, really, really bad injuries. Back surgery, catheter guy. Coxman. You know, wor- working in hospitals. That that was not his chosen career. He was also an avid outdoorsman, hunter, and Fisher. Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> he was a man's man. If, Ra- if you like if men like men. Isn't that what a man's man is? I don't man's man is what the hell does that a man's man so brad always called brad from portland always called me a man's man and he always said it what does that mean fucking man's man and then what does that mean i think it meant it's like it's like a manly man like this the stereotypical like man strapping young lad yeah like just like punching out bears and okay smearing elf blood on your face yeah killing your family that's what it's like. I'm a man's man. I kill my family. <laughs> yeah, fucking a. So Robert marries Mary Cooper in 1987. They were high school sweethearts. That they were high school sweethearts. <laughs> uh, from the person on the outside looking in, the marriage looked normal and loving, but those on the inside would describe Robert as cruel, distant, and very controlling. For instance, he only let Mary paint the walls white on their house. And she was not permitted to hang quilts on the walls that she made. Hmm. Yeah. Their children were only allowed to be friends with kids that Mr. Fisher approved of. That's not that controlling. His kids were really young. I wouldn't want our kid to be friends with people we didn't like. Like the guy in the trench coat? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, or that... Or that- um, the ice cream man. Yeah, the ice cream man in our neighborhood. I he don't is think not he's selling, selling ice cream. cream. <laughs> he's selling drugs. Uh, yeah. Sorry, allegedly. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know who he is. <laughs> so once he even turned the garden hose on Mary for speaking up against him, hmm. which is a trick I've yet to pull on you, Amy. <laughs> I've done it to you, though. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even speak up. It was just fun. <laughs> So they had two kids, Brittany and Robert Jr. Robert Sr. was embarrassed that his son did not like to hunt and fish like he did. And I assume this was later on, not just straight so, out of the So wood. already it seems like he's shaping up to be a disappointed killer. Yeah. Or a disappointed annihilator. I'm just, you know, using now what I kind of know, I'm like trying to categorize him a little bit. So he tried to teach his kids how to swim by throwing them out of a boat, according to his hunting partner, Sandy Gillespie. Which, you know, when I was a kid, I lived in this apartment complex, and there was this hill that went to the carport, and you had to turn right or left, because if you went straight, you're hitting a garage door. And I remember teaching one of my sisters how to ride a bike with my friends (laughs) by pushing pushing her down the fucking hill. And you know what? She learned how to ride a bike? She didn't hit the garage door. So. Again, don't align yourself with Robert Fisher, please. Oh, I'm not. Okay, okay. (laughs) 
It's not that rare. Yeah. Uh, drowning, drowning's a little more serious than like hitting a garage door. <laughs> okay. Well, he didn't drown his kids okay. because they he could saved them, mm. so he can. He could have though. Okay. Well, he's gonna do a lot worse later. So besides all that, he tried to keep up appearances like he was the quote devoted family man. It was said that Fisher didn't socialize often with family because of the fear of getting close to people and losing them. Some of the long-lasting effects of the divorce, so it seems. Fisher had been an outdoorsman and hunter since he was very young. Friends noticed some, quote, concerning behavior on more than a few of their hunting trips, where after killing an elk, he began smearing its blood on his face. But who doesn't do that? I don't. I don't hunt. Amy, don't. You don't either. But I would if I... No, you wouldn't. I think you have to. No. In the movies, they do. So, more concerning to me is on several occasions, so it's said, Fisher would sneak up uh, behind a family picnicking or whatever. Just any family, not his? No, yeah. Ew. From what I read, it was just he would sneak up on a, on a family that was like just in what like, having a picnic, and then just start shooting his gun into the air. Whoa, I've never heard that. So. That's weird. That's beyond fucking weird. That's a red flag. <laughs> Robert and Mary were active members of the Scottsdale Baptist Church. Robert was part of the man's ministry, of course. And I don't even know what a man's ministry is. Yeah. <laughs> in 1998, the Fishers go to some marriage counseling through their church. And why did they go to marriage counseling, Kevin? Well, it turns out that Mr. Fisher wasn't the nicest guy. But maybe this has something to do with it. Because in December 2000, Robert falls ill to the effects of a urinary tract infection from an STD he got from a prostitute during a one-night affair thing at a massage parlor. And he tried to blame his back surgery on... Basically, he said, because I had back surgery, I had to go to a massage therapist. And because I went to a massage therapist, I got this STD because, of course, they offered me sex. So again, like, he's trying to shirk the blame off of himself because of his injury. It seems like his mom... And the injury and those kind of emasculating things are the bane of his existence. So anything that makes him feel emasculated in any way, anything that causes him pain, he wants to somehow destroy or deface, you know? So Wade Ranksock, a former neighbor, said that, quote, they did not have a happy marriage. They screamed constantly. Everybody heard it. You could hear it in the house next door. And you never heard him scream, which is kind of weird. I mean, he had a kind of way about him, but you never heard him scream. You heard his wife screaming. Things like, you're worthless. I could have done better than you. So that's fucking harsh. And that's more demasculating, like Amy is saying. So, surprise, surprise, Mary wanted a divorce. She told him several times. And you know how he felt about divorces. Yeah, his parents got divorced, and it ruined his existence. Mm -hmm. So Fisher told a hunting buddy that he was renewing his commitment to his faith and marriage because, quote, he could not live without his family. I think here he's doing some predictive programming, planning to see that he really loved his family and would possibly kill himself if they were to split up. April 9th. 2001, a neighbor reports hearing a loud argument inside the Fisher home around 10.30 p.m. At 10.43 p.m., Fisher was spotted on an ATM camera where he withdrew $280. Which is potentially the limit that you could draw. A lot of people say that it's a weird amount, but I think at the time in the 90s, it was the most you could withdraw. So also in that ATM footage is Mary's Toyota 4Runner. So at 8.42 a.m., the Fisher house exploded. Like, blew the fuck up. The explosion was strong enough to be heard for miles around. 
it collapsed the front brick wall and rattled the frames of neighboring houses for a half mile in all directions. Firefighters were immediately alerted and arrived to see a wall of 20-foot flames engulfing the entire house. There was a series of secondary explosions thought to be rifle ammunition or paint cans or something, and that kept firefighters from getting close enough to put the fire out. Investigators found the gas line from the furnace had been pulled, and the accumulating gas was later ignited by a candle Fisher had allegedly lit in the hallway. This delayed fuse would have given Fisher plenty of time, 10 hours approximately, of a head start to elude law enforcement. It is believed the house exploding was an attempt to hide evidence. You think? Mm-hmm. What evidence, you say? Well, found in the burnt shell of a house were the charred remains of Mary, Brittany, and Robert Jr., all in their beds. Investigators believe that if they were alive when the house caught fire, they would have tried to escape. And the fact that they were all in their beds immediately told them that they were already dead when the fire started. Upon further investigation, it was found that Brittany and Robert Jr. had their throats cut and Mary was shot in the head. Brittany was 12 and Robert Jr. was 10. So it's fucking brutal. Fisher was immediately the number one suspect. On April 20th, a camper alerted police to Mary's forerunner in the Tonto National Forest, 100 miles north of Scottsdale. The Fisher's dog, Blue, was also with the truck, not inside or chained up, just there, waiting for his master to return. There was also a giant human turd near the passenger side door. A possible last message. Or he just had to take a shit. The simplest answer is probably the most likely. (laughs) Occam's razor. Thank you, Occam. Whenever I hear Occam's razor, I always think clams. Razor clams? (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I don't know why. It's weird. The area where this is, where they found the car, is full of caves. and They were saying something like 60 caves. A bunch, yeah. There's also the Fort Apache Indian Reservation, which is less than a mile from where the car was found. And they never searched that, did they? They Police have no jurisdiction there. Also, out of all those caves, like we kind of just said, only one was like thoroughly checked out. And it was the closest one? Uh, Uh, I think there was footprints going up to the cave. That's why they checked that one out the most, which is insane, knowing that there's like 60 caves in the area and he's this... Avid outdoorsman. Right, yeah. Um, So the main idea was that Robert Fisher went into one of these caves and committed suicide. Um, A couple reported seeing a man walking along Young Road before the forerunner was found. According to them, the woman said she thought that it was Robert Fisher. She, like, said to her husband, hey, it's Robert Fisher. Uh, And uh, they only reported this after the truck was found. Hmm. Um, and I don't know if this was, I mean, it had to have been after the crimes, right? Yeah. Because I don't think she personally knew Robert Fisher. I think she was like, oh, isn't that the guy from TV? Yeah. Look at the that, way that fucking but, lunatic's but he, walking but with his chest. He wasn't, he wasn't named a suspect until many days after. Right. And remember there was, um, in the documentary, the, the father-in-law of Robert Fisher was just like, come back. We love you. We miss you. Right, we know yeah. you didn't do this to her. We know you couldn't do this. Like, that we scene feel is so disturbing. bad for you. Oh my God. It's so heartbreaking. Yeah, man. His pain, you can f- just feel it. Yeah. It's fucked. So, Lori Greenbeck, a family friend, said her husband went camping with Fisher in the same area that the forerunner would be found 10 days before this happened. Uh, it's thought that Fisher took him out camping in that area, scouting and planning this thing out. Mm. July 19th, 2001, a state arrest warrant was issued in Phoenix, charging Fisher with three counts of first-degree murder and one count of arson. He was then declared a fugitive, and a federal arrest warrant was issued by the United States District Court for the District of Arizona. 
The charge was unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. In June 29th, 2002, the FBI named Robert Fisher as the 475th fugitive to be placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. He was also on America's Most Wanted, where he made their dirty dozen list of their most notorious fugitives. So way to go, dickhead. <laughs> the FBI offers reward of up to $100,000 for info leading up to this dude's capture. Uh, the F- so snitches get $100,000. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Don't ruin my joke. I'm editing that out. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, the FBI has received probably thousands of tips and leads at this point. But so far, nothing has led to. The, uh, but so far. But so far, nothing has led authorities to Robert Fisher. In the years immediately following Fisher's disappearance, people from his neighborhood reported seeing him driving around. In February, tw- again, kind of similar to Yasser Saeed. Yeah, yeah. Like he. Like, oh, hey, there he is. He didn't go Hello. far from home. Yeah. yeah. Um, in two thousand four. Someone looking exactly like Fisher was taken into custody in Vancouver, Mm. British Columbia, Canada by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. The man had a missing tooth where Fisher was to have a gold fake tooth, and it was the same tooth. The man also had a surgical scar across his back, just like Fisher. They were saying that the whatever back surgery he had, though, was fairly common. Okay, that explains it. Yet the fingerprints did not match. So in the documentary, there is this, the the neighbor who always heard them fighting, you know, he really knew what Robert Fisher looked like and he knew, knew him. Like he had been neighbors with him for years. The police actually let, like he was living in Seattle at the time when this, when this sighting happened up in British Columbia. So the police actually like let him go to the jail, like undercover and get fake arrested and processed so that he could take a look at him. Do you remember this part of the documentary? No. What? Oh, yeah. So the 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 neighborhood friend went all the way up to British Columbia because he was living in Seattle at the time. And he identified him. He was like, absolutely, 100%. There's no doubt in my mind that's him. And he said that Robert, the, the guy who was presumed to be Robert Fisher, gave him a knowing glance and like got anxious and nervous when he saw him there like shit somebody recognized me and he told the american police and the british colombian police you know the rcmp without a doubt that's robert fisher 100 percent. like i would bet my life on it and they still they let him go because his fingerprints didn't match and also his mom came and said yeah this is my son and it wasn't robert fisher's mother like right yeah so yeah so fingerprints don't match and um, so they keep him uh, detained for a week until a family member, his mom, com- comes and ad- identifies this man as her son, not Robert Fisher. Um, and, you know, the police thought of Fisher maybe altering his fingerprints, but there was no scarring to indicate any altering. Yeah, so the pattern was different. It's not like it was the same pattern interrupted by scars or burned off or anything. Like, you can alter your fingerprints, but usually it'll show up, like, smooth, like like your fingerprints are gone. Yeah, like you just like Jason Bourne stick or something. your fingers in fire. Or acid or something. Off. Yeah, yeah, like Jason Bourne. I'm pretty sure he doesn't have fingerprints. I'm pretty sure he's not real. Yes, that's true. But from what I've heard is that the <laughs> pattern on his fingers oh. were completely different. Like, you know, there's that spiral fingerprint pattern, and it's just a completely different pattern. Can things be altered i don't know but apparently the police don't seem to think so so in 2012 fbi alerted local law enforcement that fisher may be living in the payson area in gila county arizona and then in 2014 in october police raided a house in commerce city colorado colorado fucking colorado after getting a tip that fisher was hiding out there uh Fisher was not there, but there were two meth heads there. And they were charged with various things meth head related. (laughs) So Fisher is considered armed and extremely dangerous. 
he has ties to Florida and New Mexico. And to any of... Can I just say that New Mexico... And to any of Amy's students listening, that's a state, (laughs) not a country. You motherfuckers need to hit the books, dudes. My students kept thinking New Mexico was a country. (laughs) It's not looking good, guys. The state of things... The state of the world right now is not just, looking it was just, good. It was just the freshman. Fucking hell. So some think Fisher committed suicide, but FBI agent Bob Caldwell thinks his personality is too narcissistic to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Caldwell. I agree. Yeah, I know. Caldwell says he's, quote, arrogant, he's cocky, he's a know-it-all, and he's a loner. So... Maybe he is hiding out in the wilderness somewhere, living off the land, or maybe his long rotten corpse is in some forgotten cave. But if you see someone that looks like our friend Jamie, (laughs) (laughs) but chews Copenhagen tobacco, is an avid hunter slash fisherman and walks with his chest puffed out, some say due to a surgery. Oh, yeah, he walks all erect and weird. Yeah, like it's going to fuck you up. Please inform local law authorities or the FBI right away. Looking at the FBI website, they warn he's considered, quote, armed and extremely dangerous. And you can submit tips anonymously on their site. But snitches get stitches, right? But snitches might also get $100,000. So that is so far is the case of Robert Fisher. And one of the reasons I really wanted to do this case, too, is that just this year alone, two cases on the FBI top 10 most wanted list have been solved mm-hmm. or, you know, the people have been captured. And I'd like to keep that trend going. It's not too late. I mean, we still got a couple months left in 2020. Yeah, 2020 is not only a bad year for everyone, but it's, but a, it's bad a bad year, year for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad year for fugitives. Yeah. I think it's We're hard. all going it's, down it's harder together. harder to hide. Unless you're like fucking a banker or some shit like that. Then you're riding high on the hog. Yeah. But you always are. So fuck you, cunts. <laughs> so what do you think? Is he dead or alive? What Any theories? I think that he's pulled some sort of Rambo fucking move and he's just out in the wilderness. I don't think he would be out in the wilderness for 18 years, but or 19 years, however long he's been a fugitive. But... There are some interesting theories out there. I know you didn't throw out all the theories, and there's a lot. A lot of people, not a lot. I can't say that because I, I, I don't know who the people are. But there is a theory that says that maybe this was staged to look like he had killed his family, and he didn't actually kill them. And so he's not on the run because he's a fugitive. He's on the run because he's scared that he'll get connected to it because he wasn't there when it happened i mean i think he did it that's it's not my theory but a lot of people so say like he, he could have been framed who would frame him if like he was in with some bad people or something is there any history of that no not necessarily i'm just I saying mean, that like, like there's boy yeah but he was also like a psycho weird magazine unloading fucking picnic he Keeper. was the crazy one. He hung out with squares. Like, they were concerned because he was rubbing blood all over himself, shooting so fucking guns in the So what I'm saying is like, that, like... You Sam, what you Sam? If he, if he was this square, like, hanging out with squares, you know, being a church-going guy, but also had this other side, who knows how far that other side extended. Maybe he had a, you know, secret double life, like Laura Palmer. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's the Twin Peaks reference. All right, well, we're going to have to fucking hit some Reddit threads on this shit. Yeah, and then, I mean, there's also the thing, too, where I think somebody said that, you know, he had a tendency after big blowout fights, he would go camping for a couple of days. And so after the blowout fight, he actually, in fact, did go camping and that the $280 was for, like, camping stuff. Um, And that's why he, like, withdrew that money and that it happened, like, he didn't know his family was dead at that point because, like, they can't corroborate exactly when the family was killed. They know when the house blew up, you know? Right. So he could have gone camping where he his car was found, but then, like, heard on the radio that his family was killed and just maybe stayed away. Right. That you know? was one of the things they said in, the, yeah. in that show. And then there was also the theory, too. I don't know. You didn't really go into this. It was another sighting. There's been a couple more sightings 
one was that there was this couple like at a bar near Payson, Arizona, and they got into a fight and she like it's maybe believed that it was him and some woman he was seeing. And that's one of the reasons like the car was wiped down is that there was maybe potentially another person with him. And later on, she actually like ran to like somebody's house and had them call 911. And they were basically saying she was saying that like her boyfriend had like killed his family or something and she just found out or whatever. There was some kind of weird thing. They were never able to find out who the woman was or anything. But I guess there's like a 911 call um, just like either the same day or days after. And then there was also one sighting in Guatemala. Did, hmm. did you hear about that one? Uh, I think I think something briefly. Yeah, yeah. it was just like some guy who looked exactly like Robert Fisher was in Guatemala and this family was like taking a picture and he was in the background of it and they took the picture and he like demanded like, hey, give me your camera. I delete that picture. I don't want to be in the background. And they I guess the family were like, dude, it does look like that guy, Robert Fisher. And also he was acting weird, you know, and mm. he was like, like threatening to break their camera if they didn't delete the picture. And so they reported to the FBI as well. But again, like all the leads that the FBI has gotten have gone nowhere, which is so crazy. I think the closest thing was definitely like the BC guy. Yeah, it's just crazy. Like in this like day of total surveillance that you can still, I mean, this was like 20 years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago. So like it's probably way harder now, but. We all have tracking devices in our pockets and stuff now. But, like, it's just crazy that this guy can just disappear. Which begs the question, did he disappear? Or is, he, or is his corpse slash skeleton in one of the cave systems or on the Apache Indian Reservation in Arizona, you know? Well, unless he turns up, we'll never know. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Do you think he's alive or dead? Uh, I don't think he killed himself, but he might be dead now. Yeah. I don't think he killed himself either. I don't necessarily believe he's alive, but I agree with the lead detective. I think that he was too into himself to kill himself. I think that he intentionally hurt his family, and I think he liked the freedom. People were saying that he liked killing things, so I think that he got a thrill out of it. Maybe there was some guilt associated with it, and I think he tried to maybe start his life over, whatever that looked like, whether it was trying to live off of the elements for a while and you know didn't make it. Or whether it was like moving to a different country or a different state. But there is part of me that knows, you know, that thinks maybe he couldn't leave the area. I don't know. Yeah, kind of an unsettling case. Doesn't have the kind of uh, ending ring like the Yasser Saeed one does. I know it, it feels like it can be solved. Well, no one probably thought the Yasser Saeed one would be solved, and it is. So, I mean, maybe this dude will turn up. Yeah. Well, Yasser Saeed was on the run for 12 years. This guy is closer to, like, 19, 20 years. So it's not that far off. It's still possible. He's got you, but Pete, he doesn't, you punk Yasser. He, he doesn't have <laughs> that same kind of family system that Yasser did, though. To You know, and money. Like, he only took out $280. There's no record of any more money being taken out. Oh, and then one thing you didn't mention was, I don't know how they totally could have seen this, but I, I think that they were able to dampen the fire enough to be able to kind of see what was there and what wasn't. And they believe that he took most of his clothes with him. Right, yeah. I did mention a couple things. Like, yeah, he took all his clothes and gun all that shit and then when they found the car the car was like spotless there was like a coffee cup and a hat mm-hmm. so yeah there's some other tidbits for you yeah it's weird it's a weird case for sure it's a head scratcher well you can join our facebook group true crime dumpster you can follow us on twitter tc dumpster and on instagram true crime dumpster you can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com, and you can also check out our website, truecrimedumpster.com. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and many other fine podcast platforms. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. Every review, rating, and referral helps us to get to a larger audience. Tune in next time where we continue to talk out the trash and give you another heavy dose of true crime. Have a great weekend.
Goodbye, and rest in peace, Eddie Van Halen. Condolences to your family. You're awesome.